So today we are going to be wrapping up our series on Matthew's Gospel, and we're going to be looking at what is called the Great Commission at the end of Matthew's Gospel in Matthew 28. So we're going to be reading that together, and I will have it up on screen for you here shortly. Matthew 28, and keep in mind that in Matthew's gospel, everything after the resurrection happens fairly quickly. He has been resurrected, the, the women see him and go and tell his disciples who don't quite believe him, and Jesus says, go to Galilee and I'll meet you there, and now they are back in Galilee, and this is where we enter into the end of Matthew's story of the gospel of Jesus. This is in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Jesus came near and spoke to them. I've received all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. Look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So I have titled this sermon, um, Myth Busting the Great Commission. We're going to be looking at a few myths that I think are really common to the church Um, when it comes to this Great Commission. This is something that I heard about first as a very young man. I remember going to a Christian camp, and we were in this very large sanctuary at Camp Crestview on the Columbia River, and one whole side of the sanctuary had this um, 2819, that part of the verse, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it was written across the wall, and that was our memory verse for the week. And every, we had worship, I think, two or three times a day, and every worship session was on the Great Commission, and we recited it. And that was very influential for me. This is the same sanctuary, the same place where I heard God first calling me into ministry. This is the same camp where I was baptized. This is um, a, a meaningful place to me, and part of that meaning came from hearing about the Great Commission and understanding that I was placed in a church that had a purpose and a mission in this world that I wanted to be a part of. So let's talk first about the Great Commission. This is post-resurrection, as we mentioned. Jesus has died. He's um, resurrected. He's back on top of a mountain. Whenever you hear about mountains in Scripture, pay attention. They're really important throughout the Old Testament, throughout the New Testament. And in Matthew's Gospel, we probably, most, if we were just reading through it, we would immediately be going, Jesus is back on a mountain teaching. What does that remind me of? Oh, yeah, that whole section in chapters 5, 6, and 7, which we now call the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus was taking all of that Old Testament law. Remember, we entered this series in that place. He was taking these Old Testament laws and he was showing them how they had taken them and dissected them and were trying to live them out. But in fact, they were missing the whole point of God's heart for his people. And so Jesus was speaking with authority. And we followed Jesus through Matthew's gospel as he's been doing this. And he's been confronting many of their religious teachings and many of their religious practices as 
God in the flesh and saying, this is not the way God intended this to be. And as we hear this, as we have been going through this series, I think it's good to be reminded once again, and I've said this many times, but the Christian church today, it looks a lot more like the religious system of the synagogues of Jesus' day than it does of what's being started here with the Great Commission. I mean, we can just kind of get the picture in our head. These 11 men who were scared to death and ran away at Jesus' arrest. I mean, even just starting with the word 11 automatically says something happened. <laughs> Where's the perfect 12, right? What happened? We lost one. One betrayed. One turned away. They, they're doubters. They, we're going to talk about that in a minute, but some are worshiping, some are doubting, right? And Jesus starts his church here. It looks a lot more like um, some sect, which is what it gets accused of early on. And so I think it's good to remember that as the church begins and as Jesus sends out those first disciples after his resurrection, there's no building, there's no formal leadership um, or structure. Now I know my, our Catholic brothers and sisters and Eastern Orthodox brothers and sisters would argue with me on this point. They would say Peter was the leader, but we don't see that here, do we? We just see all of them being sent out. There's no canon of New Testament scriptures yet. Just pause and think about that for a second because I think this is so important. If so, you were to ask and say, can you be a Christian without the Bible? There'd be so many people be, oh, no, you're a heretic without the Bible, right? What about the church for the first 300 years? They didn't have this canonized book that we have. They had the Old Testament scriptures, absolutely. And they continued to use those and elevate those. Paul used those to teach and preach from. But they didn't have the New Testament. How did that happen then? Because today you would think that would be impossible. How can you be a church without having these scriptures? We almost worship scripture. These disciples are only worshiping Jesus. So they don't have any canon yet. They don't have any books yet. Some are doubting. And he sends them all out. Even the doubters. Now wait a second. What? That doesn't make sense, does it? I mean, shouldn't the doubters be cut off until they're ready? Shouldn't they be trained and prepared? I mean, what is Jesus doing? He sends them all. Go. So, in light of that, I want to talk about six myths. I know it's not a perfect seven or three that we like to do, but I would have just been manufacturing things because six really stuck out to me as I worked through this. And I'm going to be talking about these as we go along. You'll see them on the screen. So myth number one, the Great Commission is for super-Christians, not for me. Was it only the original apostles, the 11, that were sent out and commissioned? I've actually had debates with people on this before. I'm moving out of my creaky spot. There we go. Um, I've had debates with Christians on this before who said, you know, I think it was just the original apostles, the original disciples who were sent out. Well, I mean, first of all, the silliness of that would be that we would have no church, if that were true. Um, that's certainly not the way that Christians have interpreted it. Um, is it only for pastors and missionaries, those being, you know, commissioned for teaching and preaching, those being sent out to distant lands? I think oftentimes this is how people have interpreted it. Only 
Um, well, that can't work once we understand what Jesus means by discipleship. So we're going to be talking about that too, what it means to make disciples. Because you can't just have pastors and missionaries making disciples or you won't have disciples. You won't nearly have enough disciples. I can barely keep up as a pastor with just the basic duties of things like the website and cleaning and repairing the building and doing meeting with members and with other church leaders and reading and writing and studying, worship practice, sermon prep. How could I possibly disciple even the small group of you who are in this room today? How could I disciple all of you? And we're going to talk again about what discipleship means. I can preach to you. Yes, absolutely. I can lead you in worship. But if it was only for pastors and teachers and missionaries, this great commission, only for the super Christians, not that we're super Christians, but that tends to be the way we think in our head, right? The missionaries come back from distant lands and we go, wow, I could never do that. They have such amazing faith and they tell stories of miracles that they've seen and we go, the great commission was for that person, but not for me. That's just not true. That's a, that's a myth. Oh, I was going to say this before I got started. This is a little bit dangerous saying I'm talking about the myths of the great commission, Because if you do any study of scripture, you know that myth is actually a literary genre. Myth does not mean something is false. However, in our culture, we often talk about myths as like rumors, sort of they get spread around that are not true. That's how I'm using this today. Genesis is a creation myth. A myth is a a literary genre of how things get started and begun. And it doesn't mean something is false. In this case, I am saying things are false. So that's the first myth that the great commission is for super christians not for me and just in case we were tempted not to believe this notice that matthew makes it so clear he could have left this out christians who copied this letter later could have left this out because it does not look good the resurrected jesus christ at the moment that he's going to ascend into heaven this image that will be in stained glass on massive cathedrals this you know, sort of pinnacle of God's ascension when he just clearly is divine, right? And at that moment, for the first time in the Gospels, we see the disciples worshiping Jesus. But then Matthew had to say, and some doubted. (laughs) Well, he could have just left that out, right? Obviously, he wanted that in there, the Holy Spirit wanted that in there to remind us that this is not for the super Christians. This is not only for those who feel like they've got all of their faith perfectly together. This is for every single one of us. And so for as Reformed Christians, we believe in the priesthood of all believers. Myth number two, making disciples equals getting people to say the sinner's prayer. And if you don't know what the sinner's prayer is, it often goes something like, this it's a good prayer it's fine but um jesus i'm really sorry for all the things i've done wrong these sinful things and i want you to forgive me and i want you to be my lord and come into my life amen it's a great prayer don't get me wrong but i think at least for me and i think sometimes in american christianity we believe that making disciples means getting someone to that point that moment where they'll say that prayer it is not that hard to do that I was in high school, and one of my first experiences with this kind of evangelism, um, we had a youth pastor come onto campus, and he said, at lunch hour, I would like some of you to come around with me and do some evangelism. Okay, so we're walking around, and we go, you know, the first bench we come to outside where a couple of guys are eating lunch, a couple of guys I knew, I was not friends with them, 
okay? They didn't really particularly like me. And this youth pastor was very dynamic, and he just gets in there, and he's like, so if you died tonight, what would happen? If you got hit by a bus on your way home from school, would you go to heaven or would you go to hell? I don't know. Would you like to be guaranteed that you could go to heaven? Because I can guarantee you a place in heaven for eternity. Okay, you know, so just pray this prayer with me. Repeat after me what I say, okay? Dear Lord Jesus, dear Lord Jesus. You don't say, say this prayer, done. Okay, here's my card, see you goodbye. I'd love to have you come to church. Off to the next, right? Those guys, those guys didn't have anything change in their heart. I mean, I knew those guys. What happened? What happened was they just bought some fire insurance. I'll buy what you're selling. That sounds pretty good. I mean, hey, don't get me wrong. I don't believe in God or this heaven or hell thing. But just in case, if all I got to do is repeat a few words after you, then I'm in. You know, let's do it. Let's say that prayer and see what happens. I mean, if a Buddhist walked up to me and said, if you let me bless you with a special incense and wave it over you, and, I'll, and it will guarantee that when you're reincarnated, you will not come back as a dung beetle, but you'll come back as a bald eagle. I might be a little tempted. I mean, you know, I, I have doubts at times. I mean, I, I wouldn't do it, I don't think. But, you know, right? I mean, it'd be like, okay, well, what's, what's wrong with this? Maybe just in case. I mean, that's the kind of thing that Christians have often treated as evangelism. Making disciples is not about getting people to say the sinner's prayer. What did Jesus' disciples hear when he said, you're to go and make disciples? What did they hear? They're thinking about what they just did for the last three years. I can guarantee you that it, but outside of just the stuff that we have in our Gospels, I mean, think about how much more encompasses that three-year period. I guarantee you that they were thinking about times sitting around the campfire, talking with Jesus. I can guarantee you they're thinking about the times when they had a terrible day. And I just imagine our Lord coming over and putting his arm around their shoulders. I can just imagine all those times of just day in, day out, sitting, how many tables did they sit around before they had the Last Supper? I mean, they probably didn't often use tables, but still, how many meals did they have together? How many long nights did they sit next to each other listening to Peter snore? Because I know he was a snorer. He had to be, right? I mean, that's what they would have thought about when they heard, go and make disciples, that is time-consuming. If we want to make disciples, we have to share our lives with others. We have to be traveling with them through life. We have to spend time with them, sometimes sleeping in the same places, often eating meals together, praying together. We have to spend time healing people together. That can mean a lot of things. Challenging evil. I mean, these are the things that Jesus did with his disciples challenging those who have wrong ideas about God, and in that case, it becomes pretty dangerous work making disciples. Myth number three. Making disciples means teaching your kids to be followers of Jesus. And I want to say, as I share this with you, I'm starting by saying this as a parent. Think about this logically. First of all, did Jesus do this? Well, we, we know Jesus didn't have kids, okay? So no, he didn't do that. But did he only focus on kids? He has some really important things to say about kids. Did the disciples do this? We know some of them were married. We know some of them had kids. Second, if the church 
if these were sent out to make disciples, and if the church only focused on making disciples of their kids to the exclusion of everyone else around them in the culture, and then those kids did the same thing and made disciples of their kids because that's what they learned disciple-making was, then the gospel would have never gone out to all nations, as Jesus said. The Greek word here is actually all ethnos. It's where we get the word ethnicity. All people groups. We talk about people groups. All peoples. It's intended to say those who aren't like you Jewish men I'm talking to right now. That's who I want you to go to. And the reason I say that this is a myth is because I think that oftentimes the American church has become comfortable with this idea. Now, let me say this because I think this is important to hear and, and I know, I think we all know it. As parents, it is our responsibility to teach our kids what it means to be a disciple. But how can you teach someone to be a disciple if the nature of being a disciple is making disciples? So if we only teach our kids how to make disciples of themselves, then they're going to go make disciples of their kids. They never learn what true discipleship looks like. You have to be making disciples outside of your family. If you're not, then your kids aren't learning about discipleship and what it means. Myth number four, evangelism happens before discipleship. That's the myth. I'm saying that's, that's what's not true. That evangelism happens before discipleship. We are called to baptize. That would be evangelism, right? We want people to be changed and reborn and to claim faith in Jesus Christ. That's evangelism. This brings people into the family. But converting people to the Christian faith or getting them just to believe something in their head is not the goal. I want to read to you um, what discipleship, I think, looks more like. And this is in John, John's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 35. So this is early on in John's Gospel when he's, Jesus is calling disciples. And listen to how this plays out. The next day, John was standing again with two of his disciples. This is John the Baptist, standing with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus walking along, he said, Look, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard what he said, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned around and saw them following, he asked, What are you looking for? They said, Rabbi, which is translated teacher, where are you staying? He replied, Come and see. This is going to happen twice, this come and see. So they went, and they saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. One of the two disciples who heard what John said and followed Jesus was Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we've found the Messiah. He led him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, Simon, you're, you're, you're Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day, Jesus went into Galilee and he found Philip. Jesus said to him, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found the one Moses wrote about in the Law and the Prophets, Jesus, Joseph's son from Nazareth. Nathanael responded, Can anything good come from Nazareth? Philip said, Come and see. Do you see the pattern there? The invitation there? Come and see. Come and see. Come and see. It's not believe and then I'll teach you who this guy is. You know, it's come and see, come and see. And I believe that discipleship looks a lot more like that. 
So discipleship happens before evangelism. We are discipling people long before we often think that we are discipling people. Um, discipleship, how, yeah, so could you disciple someone then if they are not a Christian and they don't go to church? Could you disciple someone if they're not a Christian and they don't go to church? And I would say once, if we understand the way Jesus did discipleship and the way the disciples did discipleship, we could say yes to that question. In other words, we have got in our heads some of these myths that you've got to have someone say the sinner's prayer and then they've got to believe and then you can disciple them. And I would say no, discipleship starts long before because the Holy Spirit's already at work. So the way you live your life around those people who never know, who, who don't know who Jesus is, you may be already discipling them, especially if there's intentionality behind the way you care for them and love them. Okay, myth number five. Teaching them to obey, this is what Jesus says, teach them to obey, that that equals Bible study. Teaching them to obey means we get people in rooms and we do Bible study. Of course, it will include Bible study. And I always want to say that because I, I don't want anyone to think I'm anti-Bible study. I am a, a teaching elder. That is my ordination to teach scriptures. I love it. It's going to include Bible study. But just, again, common sense. Think about this. Parents, is that how we teach our kids to obey? Okay, I'm going to take you into the room. We're going to get out, you know, some papers, and you're going to write down, you know, I will not write on the wall with crayons. I will not punch my brother. Okay, I want you to memorize these. Let's talk about what, how that works. Can you write on the refrigerator? Is that okay? Is that a wall? I mean, no, we don't do this. We teach people to obey in the midst of the, just the everyday stuff that goes on. Experiencing the natural consequences of disobedience. So if you're teaching someone to obey Jesus, there are times when they will rebel, when we rebel. And there are consequences to that. We see those in our relationship. We see those in our life. Learning to make the right choices in the face of intense temptation. Not talking about it theoretically. But I'm in it, you know. I am, this is so tempting right now. How do I overcome this? Teaching them to obey. Learning to trust God will be there and bless you in your obedience. I mean, finances are a great example of this. This is one of the ways that I learned to obey God. I had people early in my life challenging me to be faithful in the way I gave, both to the church and to those around me, even when I didn't have enough money. And when I was going through college and I'm trying to study to be a pastor and I didn't have enough money, that was really hard. And it was learning to trust that God would be there and care for me. Teach them to obey. It's not just Bible study. It's a lot more than that. Okay, last one, myth number six. It is our job to bring people to Jesus and make them Christian. And I'm saying that's a myth. And I would expect at least some of you to push back and go, wait a second, didn't Jesus just say that? Didn't he just tell them to go out and do that? Yes, he did. But notice how it's all in what I call this Jesus sandwich. And this is important. It starts with all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Not to you. <laughs> and he doesn't say, I'm giving you all authority in heaven. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, because of that, now, go. 
and do this, making disciples and teaching them to obey and baptizing. And then the end of it, and I will be with you always. I love the way our, the CEB translated that we read today. Um, look, I myself will be with you every day until the end of this present age. I will be with you every day. If this was our work, we wouldn't need Jesus to be with us. But we do. It's in the middle of this Jesus sandwich. And once we understand that Jesus loves every person created by God more than we could possibly ever know, and that the Holy Spirit is actively pursuing them and drawing every single person we meet to Jesus, then it's not on us. Yes, we get to do discipleship, we get to do evangelism, but if we do it out of obligation or guilt or shame or desire to get people to think like us or vote like us, then we're just like those Pharisees that Jesus was condemning. Do you remember what he said to them? He said that they travel over land and sea to make one convert, but once they're converted, they become twice the child of hell that they are. Yikes! And Christians, we have to own this because we have done this at times. We have gone over land and sea to make converts, and at times we have made them twice the child of hell in the sense that Jesus is talking about in terms of being legalistic, judgmental, small-minded, small-hearted people. And everything we have looked at in Matthew's gospel runs against that. Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. I will be with you always. Therefore, join me. Go and make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them. All of our efforts in disciple-making and evangelism are because of Jesus' grace for us. All of our successes and making disciples are only possible in Jesus' grace. And all of our efforts in making disciples in the end, are they all, all of our efforts in making disciples end in Jesus' grace as well, despite our failures, because we will fail. So we can make mistakes and trust that God has not failed and given up on somebody. So what we're called to do is, is to rely on God's strength to do the work, God's heart to lead the work, and to be willing and ready to participate when we are called and when we are sent. Let's pray. God, I think for many of us, the whole idea of making disciples or evangelism is terrifying, it's scary. And I think a lot of that, I know speaking personally, and I think for many of us as well, a lot of that scariness and the way that's just off-putting to be called to make disciples is because we've seen it done so poorly and in so many wrong ways. Lord, help us to remember the men and women who discipled us and who are still doing it. Help us to look to those people you've put into our life who model it for us well. And help us to do the same for others, that we would be passing on what has been given to us. Lord, we rely on your grace for this. We can't do it on our own strength. Help us to have the heart that you have for the people that we run into every day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.